October 23rd, 2023. My name is Jaron Jackson. I do love America. For me, it's always about the gospel of Jesus Christ. His death, his burial, his resurrection. Believe the gospel because that is God's power to salvation. Even if it goes against your most fundamental doctrines and the thing that makes you comfortable. Today, I want to talk about the Israel-Gaza logistics and how that's going to be showing the geopolitical playbook. Now, as a guy that has studied military logistics, been in the army, did stuff, logistics interests me. It's always interested me because from an early age studying history, I tied the fact that there needs to be stuff and bombs and bullets and the transportation of men and armies in order to fight. The fighting is the action, but the logistics is the seismic tectonic shifts. So if you understand the logistics, it's almost as though there is a playbook that's already been written. And I don't mean that from a perspective that there is an elite group of people who are orchestrating and puppeting the world's affairs. I believe that while there are people who try to do that, I don't believe that those people are God. And so I want to look at what the Bible says regarding world affairs. I do believe if you understand what the Bible says, you can see how world affairs line out. Proverbs chapter 23 Verse 4 and 5 says, Labor not to be rich. Cease from thine own wisdom. Wilt thou sell thine eyes upon which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven. Now there's a lot that goes in there. The thing that cuts me is the fact that you should not labor to be rich. Your work should be worship. And because your work should be worship, which goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, whenever God tells Adam, be fruitful and multiply, you get to participate with God in his creation. So your work from the very beginning is a participatory act of worship with God for God. So if you're laboring to be rich, your motive and your desire to do stuff is not for God, it's for something else. That doesn't mean you can't work. You should. That doesn't mean you can't make money. You you should. That doesn't mean you can't be absolutely wealthy and incredibly rich. God may bless you in that regard. But it means that your work is as worship. And when I want to do is I want to point out one of the things that I believe is going on in the world right now involving corporations and the corporations doing what they're wanting to do, which is pursuing money for wealth, right? They're, they're laboring to be rich. They're literally going against what God says because corporations are going against what God says. That is going to be wherein we're going to identify the geopolitical playbook. I also believe that that is wherein lies the solution. God's wisdom is going to be able to be a thread going through that. And Lord willing, I'll be able to show that today. Before I do that, there's one way that you can help me. The workman is worth his wages. One way is to go to patriotswitch.com slash Jaren. Patriotswitch.com slash Jaren. Logistics is a big deal. 
American manufacturing is what I want to support. I'd encourage you to support it, but this is household products, over 450 American manufactured household products delivered right, delivered, I should say, delivered, delivered right to your door at patriotswitch.com slash Jaren. Sign up. Me or someone with me will be in touch. It's a great opportunity uh, to get products to, to directly to your door, not Godless Kami, and it's a, a way to support me and the work that I do. Thank you very much. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 4 and 5. Labor not to be rich. Cease from thine own understanding. Just right there. Don't work to be rich. Don't work to be wealthy. If the motive of your work is to be wealthy, the Bible literally tells you, stop. Cease from thine own wisdom. Stop what you think is smart. Stop doing what you think is smart if the, if the reason you work is to be rich. And then verse 5 goes on to say, Wilt thou set thine nine eyes upon that which is not? You're going to focus on something that doesn't exist? You're going to look at something that literally isn't a thing? Being rich is not a thing, is what the Bible says. For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven. Now, if riches are going to set themselves with wings, they will create opportunities. If you're rich, there will be opportunities for you to lose your money. More opportunities. This is what Jay-Z said, mo money, mo problem, amen? Uh, I got 99 problems, but uh, what ain't one? The more money you have, the more problems there are, the more opportunities there are for the money to be, to be gone. You will lose the money. So if your focus is to work to get rich, the rich, the wealth, the, the money will sprout itself wings and will leave. And it will leave as an eagle towards the heaven, which is fast. Which is, you can't control it. Like, it's going to go be an eel. Now, I want to tie this, if I can, back to Israel. Uh, the, uh, the, 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 I don't know what people are calling it. Some people are calling it World War III. Some people are calling it the Israel-Gaza War. Whatever it is that we're talking about. I want to laser focus in on Israel, Israel and Gaza. Gaza. This, I believe, is going to show the shortfall of the military-industrial complex as it's currently arrayed with its major corporations, its high overuse of technology, and the fundamental aspect of war, and that is he who holds the ground will win. If you don't hold the ground, if you're not physically holding the terrain, you're not going to win. So eventually everything comes down to the individual soldier. It comes down to who is on the ground. I happen to believe, and I will start to point out, that there is an over-reliance on technology, there's an over-reliance on missiles and drones and those types of things that will make it very costly whenever people try to go in, whenever Israel tries to go in and take Gaza. Now, to be very clear, I believe Israel should destroy Hamas. Absolutely. I believe Israel is the superior superpower in the Middle East. I think that Israel can whoop any and all Arab nations at once, simultaneously, in multiple directions. They did it in 1967, they did it in 1973, and that was before they had an industrial army that was backed by b -b 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 billions of U.S. taxpayer dollars for decades. Israel today is a superpower. It is a military superpower in the Middle East compared to other, military, uh, other Middle Eastern nations. Not even close. So when someone says the nations are surrounding Israel, I don't see any nation that's surrounding Israel that provides any threat to Israel. People in Israel will die, and that's not good. But if we're talking about national being able to annihilate Israel, I don't, th I don't think it exists. 
I don't think Lebanon has a nuke. I don't think Jordan has a nuke. I don't think Saudi Arabia has a nuke. If Egypt does, uh, that would be the end of Egypt because America would annihilate Egypt. Israel would annihilate Egypt. Um, Iraq doesn't. Iran might, but for Iran to get it from Iran to Israel is another thing completely. Uh, really don't underestimate the intelligence apparatus that the nation of Israel has. It is wide. It is all over the place. And it's very influential. And so I believe that there is a opportunity. There's, there is the probability, I should say, because I don't, I don't know anything. I'm not in the know of this stuff. But I believe if people are tracking Iran having a nuke, and that would be of critical strategic importance, I, I don't see that that has happened because if that were getting to the point to where it would happen, Iran being Shia, Muslims who believe that they have to destroy Jerusalem in order to bring in the, the 13th Mahdi, um, they would do that, which would mean that Israel, knowing that that's what the Shias believe in an eschatological sense, Israel would do something preemptively, which is what they did with wombats over Demona a couple uh, decades ago. But I want to get to the logistics. If you are going to the logistics of Gaza, the of like fighting Hamas in Gaza, it's going to be brutal. This is current Raytheon uh, simp, former Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, speaking about this on, um, what was this, CNBC or MSNBC? Listen to this. Commentary follows. And they're, they're about to launch this ground offensive in Gaza. You, you were at CENTCOM. You were the CENTCOM commander when ISIS had control of, of Mosul. And, and it took nine months, but you cleared ISIS out, out of Mosul with our Iraqi and Kurdish partners. What, what, what is that? What were the lessons you learned there that apply here? Well, the first thing that everyone uh, should know, and I think everybody does know, that uh, urban combat is extremely uh, difficult. It's, uh, it goes at a, at a, at a slow pace. Uh, that was nine months. Nine yes. months of intense combat. Yes. This may be a bit more difficult because of the underground network of tunnels that the uh, uh, that Hamas has constructed over time, and the fact that they've had a long time to uh, to prepare for a fight. So I think uh, you'll see a fight that's characterized by a lot of IEDs, a lot of booby traps, uh, and just uh, really grinding activity uh, going forward. Yeah, the, I, I completely agree. In fact, I was saying tunnels were going to be vicious and brutal. You know, as soon as this thing started. Tunnels change the game. Tunnels are underground, which automatically are going to be impacting visibility. If you're shooting someone, if you can't see them, you impact visibility. If Even if you use uh, infrared, infrared would be useful, but now you require line of sight, which is assuming the tunnel is straight and assuming that you, know, it, uh, you have good visibility. Um, what was it? Um, uh, night optical devices, uh, night illumination, you have to have light in the tunnel in order for it to work. I, I, believe, I, I believe that these tunnels are going to be a death trap. If, I mean, like, this is why there's no solution. I would argue and I would encourage a siege-style solution in, his, in, in Gaza. I've said that before, and that's because even though that's going to be vicious... And that's going to show, uh, you know, that that will create its own problems where people will say, oh, Israel's starving us and people are dying. That is going to be, from a war perspective, much more beneficial from a saving lives perspective 
than it would be if you just go in there. You go in there and you start rooting these people out, um, it's going to be bad. It, it is going to be bad. There is no good option. I believe that um, you can create large humanitarian uh, camps in the Negev desert uh, in Israel to the east, uh, set up the big, you know, check, frisk everybody, make sure there's no bombs, make sure there's no intelligence, take all their comms devices, take all their guns and weapons and just put them out in the desert, give them plenty of water, plenty of food, and just camp there. It's not a permanent solution, but... You, you get them in a position where you're not going to be doing this. If you go into the tunnels, it's going to be something completely different. Uh, the Mark IV, the Israeli tank, the Mark IV is the best tank in the world. This is absolutely hands down better than the Abrams tank from, uh, from the United States. It's tracking, it's b ballistics, the gyroscopes on these things are absolutely, there is no peer. There is no peer in the world. The Israelis have the best tanks in the world. The Mark IV is the best tank. When you go into an urban fight, the things that make tanks valuable is their speed, is their relative armor, like their local armor to be able to withstand um, you know, small arms fires. Um, and, uh, and, and the fact that their weapon systems, I mean, that's basically an artillery piece moving uh, with the the optics and the gyroscopes and the computers are so advanced. You could have a tank going like 70 miles an hour, hitting bumps and banging all over the place and could still accurately put a pinpoint Sabo around, uh, which is going to be um, a high velocity uh, kinetic ballistic that just blows out basically any armor. Um, unless you have depleted uranium, which basically provides a blowback from the initial hit, a Sabo from a, from a Mark IV is going to punch through anything. But in urban combat where there's streets, where there's cities, where there's a three-dimensional, three-sixty-degree uh, battlefield, the main gun of a tank is going to be uh, greatly diminished. The optics from a tank is going to be diminished. The armor, while it's still good and effective, is not going to be able to withstand what's called an electro explosively formed projectile. In Iraq, there was a Iranian technology that's called an EFP. The EFP is a ball of um, ball of explosives, and then on front of it is a is a metal plate. And when the ball of explosives explode, and and so it shoots this way. So ball of explosives explodes, and as it explodes, it forms a projectile that goes towards whatever it is and you angle it up you normally put it on the side of the road and you kind of angle it to where it would hit um, a truck you could trigger this thing by command detonation which means you would like push a button and go you could do radio control which you would like again call a phone that would be rigged up and it would explode or you can do victim operated whereby there's a pressure plate or something underneath where the tank rolls over and as soon as sufficient weight uh, collapses the the network or the circuit that that triggers the device to blow the point is an EFP is cheap you're talking you know, five pounds of C4, which which, which really doesn't have to be C4 because that's industrially made. You could do homemade explosives for 20 bucks, uh, you know, 20 bucks of material, do a homemade explosive with a piece of iron, with a piece of copper, with a piece of, um, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, copper and iron would do the thing. And then you direct that against a tank. You detonate that. So multi-million dollar tank 
neutralized there because, and this is the part that people, they won't understand, they don't explain. An EFP that punches through is only going to form like a small hole through the armor, but what it does, it goes straight through, which brings with it force and the kinetic force, even if it doesn't hit you, the force will hit you. It's kind of like whenever you stand by a train and a train drives by or you're you're driving on the highway and uh, like a semi opposes you, that semi is bringing force and that force, even though you don't hit the semi, it it kind of moves you. Or whenever you're driving and the wind hits you, that force would be what would happen to everybody inside of that tank. And the inside of the tank is made of cast iron steel, you know, cast iron, reinforced steel, uh, up armored, depleted uranium. And so people would be basically thrown against this hardened structure. And so everybody inside could still you know, be physically on the outside fine, but then they got internal bleeding, they got the concussion from their brain, they got, uh, you know, uh, organs that have been burst or disrupted or whatever. Uh, it's just really, really bad. And so EFPs are a cheap, uh, low-tech option that are asymmetric, which means that they perfectly invert the strength of the tank. And so I, I point this out because whenever you go into... Uh, got whenever Israel goes into Gaza, they're going to be going into tunnels, which will reduce the visibility, which if you've ever fought inside of a tunnel or done any side, any kind of subterranean operation, the noise is just is deafening. Even if you've got um, even if you've got, uh, you know, uh, earbuds in, um, it's going to be deafening, deafening. Underground disrupts all communications. You're not going to be able to, to, to communicate because whereas you enjoy radio frequencies traveling freely above ground, whenever you get underground, the radio frequency isn't going to be able to go through the dirt. It's not going to be able to go through the rock. And so it's just, it's incredibly hard. Most people don't train a subterranean uh, underground operations. And so now you're going to be getting uh, conscripts or conventional soldiers. It's, it's going to be a bloodbath. It's going to be bad. I point this out, not because, well, I point this out, first of all, to pray. Like to, to pray to mitigate the casualties, both of uh, the Jews and the Israelis, but also the, the you know, the Gazans, the Palestinians, um, I believe you know Israel needs justice, and I believe they should crush Hamas. At the same time, um, it, it's just it's going to be bad. Uh, I'll point this out. This is Hezbollah's rockets. This is from where did I get this from? This is from Center of Strategic International Studies. And so, what we want to look at here is the fact that Hezbollah is in the West Bank, which is up to you know it's east of Jerusalem. It's north. I should say it's in northern part of Israel basically on the opposite side of the country as the Gaza Strip. So you've got Hamas in Gaza, and you've got Hezbollah in the West Bank. Hezbollah has a lot more rockets that are more sophisticated, more deadly. And this is going to, um, I believe, that the rockets coming out of the West, uh, the rockets coming out of Gaza from Hamas are gonna be cheaply made, I believe that they are cheaply made and not really as dangerous, though they're still dangerous. I believe that they're cheaply made to trigger the Iron Dome ballistics. So the Iron Dome is this uh, surface-to-air missile intercept technology where someone shoots a rocket in. Israel has these what's called an Iron Dome that shoots these really, mass really expensive missiles that intercept it to where the rockets don't hit. 
Well, one of those missiles is going to cost a lot way more than one of the cheaply made rockets. The dumb rocket, which is usually just, you know, kind of, you know, angled by, you know, it's, 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 it's used just kind of line of sight. And they just kind of do it, right? It's, it's really not effective. It's not like a precision munition. Um, cheap, not precise, will still kill people, but it's shot. And in order to protect civilian life, is, Israel's got the Iron Dome. Well, this is just, take this as I mean it. It's good economics. It's good economics for Hamas or Hezbollah to shoot cheap rockets to take expensive Israel missiles. And a lot of those missiles are manufactured and paid for by U.S. taxpayer dollars. And so you can see very quickly where the economics in this war, the logistics in this war is really going to add up. And I believe that Hezbollah has better rockets and more rockets than, uh, than the Palestinians do, than Hamas does in Gaza. This means that while Gaza is shooting its rockets into Israel, eating up all those stockpiles of... Iron Dome missiles to intercept them. Hezbollah is just sitting there in the West Bank, just chilling. And they've, I believe, I believe, I don't have intelligence to to prove this, but I, I believe that they've got a lot more rockets. I believe they'll do a lot more damage. I think it will be a lot deadlier when Hezbollah gets involved. And that's why you've got people, um, you know, that's why you've got um, uh, what's his name, Benjamin Netanyahu, saying that you know no one else, no one else should get involved. If, if, if Hezbollah and the West Bank gets involved, we're going to crush you too. And so there's just this escalation. And one of the reasons, here's my, my general point about logistics. One of the reasons why the escalation is happening is because as you have the big military industrial complex brought to you by large corporations, there is a pummeling effect. It's, it's like the, the corporation has advanced a type of warfare that carpet bombs and, and deals math, mass death quickly. Uh, the counter to that is the cheap, uh, you know, not really effective version that these jihadis have. And what that's going to do, it's going to prick and counterpoint the expensiveness of what the previous budgets of the military industrial complex has afforded. This is why, as reported last week, Lake City in Missouri has ceased its commercial contracts and seems to be refitting, reframing for a war uh, potential to manufacture ammunition for something else. Um, this is a big deal because not only does that limit ammunition here in the United States, but now there's a backlog. You can't just create a bullet. It takes time to manufacture these components, to put it together, to ship, to put it on freight, and then to ship it. It takes a long time. And so I believe that Israel is now in the position where they recognize the asymmetric um, inversion whereby cheap Hamas rockets will deplete Iron Dome interceptor missiles. So now Israel's in the position saying, do we go in and get them before we run out of Iron Dome and Hezbollah just completely just rains down on us and we've got nothing to do at which point we now got to go against them and if that happens now you've got all the arab nations just looking at israel going now we're going to get you i think that's what's going to happen i think that's what's going to be precipitating because you already see and this is an insurance thing this is talking about insurance this is talking about the high this is talking about the war risk insurance cost estimates in a high risk environment and it talks about the different uh, prices of things. I have an article uh, that, that points out that on October 11th, 
was the last uh, time that a fueling station, excuse me, a power plant was shut down in Gaza. Uh, Gaza's only functioning power plant shut down on October 11 when it ran out of fuel, blanketing the territory in darkness after Israel cut off its supply. In Gaza, a lack of fuel can now mean the difference between life and death. That's the siege. That's what I advocate. I mean, siege these people, take away their resources, and force them to come out. It's it's a it's a notion of if you don't have bread or water or medical supplies, you're gonna hands. All right, we're we're gonna leave. People will. I I don't put it past the jihadis to keep their own people there to force them to starve so that the world could then see the ki- kinds of conditions that Israel would be inflicting on them from the um uh you know from the from the siege. You've, you, there have been trucks coming from Egypt into Israel to provide aid, but 20 trucks is not sufficient for more than 2 million people's worth of food and water and medical supplies. So there's a really big deal, but what this graphic is pointing at is that there is an increased cost to doing business and commerce when there's war. And this makes sense because if you own a ship and you're, you're transporting material, it's going to cost you more if there's a chance that your material is intercepted, if it's stolen, if the ship is destroyed or damaged, which pre- which would prevent future use. I point this out because as the civilian commercial industry charges more money for insurance to uh, commodities going to Israel, you will see, I believe, you will see the tab being picked up by America. You will see a Lend-Lease Act style of humanitarian aid because whereas Israel has a, has a robust commercial tie to all sorts of people and it's right there in the Mediterranean, now that there is war, people will start to charge a premium for insurance on commodities coming in because if your ship is coming from Taiwan, let's say, and it's coming into the point port of Jaffa, and people are going to say, well, that might get shot by Hezbollah. It might get shot by Gaza. The owner of that freighter is going to say, you got to pay more insurance. Now, you might be able to pay that once, but you pay that every single time on every commodity, for every shipping vessel, for everything. The, the, the costs then become prohibitive. These prohibitive costs would then cut against Israel's market economy, which you already now have uh, Israel has told the company of Chevron to start to stop pumping its oil. And therein lies one of the things I really wanted to get to. The Middle East has a bunch of oil. Got a bunch of oil. Doesn't have as much as the Permian Basin in Texas. And this is where my suspicions and my skepticism are so high because we've got a lot of oil to frack and to produce and to provide for all sorts of people around the world in Texas. That's not even including here in Oklahoma. That's not even including you know other places in the United States. I believe certain things are being coordinated to escalate another war in the Middle East because the petrodollar used by the central bankers is being undermined by nations like China, Brazil, India, Russia. And as a result of this, those other nations are all looking for fuel. They're all looking for energy. Energy is what the world needs in order to continue to do what it does. And so whenever you threaten energy, whenever I should say when you control energy, you can really manipulate the rest of the world. And the US dollar 
is based on petroleum. It's based, it's the petrodollar. And we've seen where Saudi Arabia has pulled away from, and OPEC has pulled away from the central bankers. We have seen where the BRICS economy is trying to develop an alternative economy, an alternative currency based on a basket of commodities that are not oil. I think they're failing because no other commodity is as necessary as fuel. Energy is what it seems to be the world's economy is based on. And because this world economy is looking at that, because the currency is looking at that, the Middle East is this flashpoint. Not only does it have the trade routes like I pointed out, it's got, you know, you if you control the Rock of Gibraltar over there by Spain, between Spain and uh, Morocco, that's key because now you basically control Southern Europe and the north of Africa. You control the Suez Canal either on, on either side of it or the, the, the um, what's it called, the Persian Gulf. You control these things, you control massive amounts of oil. And I believe that's what's happening. And so because uh, of the increased situation, the escalation in Israel, you've got logistics that are going to be disrupted. And as the logistics are disrupted, you necessarily have other people starting to fill those gaps. And the way that they fill those gaps is by force. The U.S., I believe, will do a Lend-Lease Act style to Israel. Biden last week was already saying that we needed to become the arsenal of democracy, which is exactly what Franklin Delano Roosevelt said uh, whenever he was pushing for that in 1939 and 1940 so that America would give the United Kingdom and America would give Soviet Union all sorts of trucks and supplies and weapons and goods and food and all sorts of stuff. And this is now bringing me back home. Because if I look back home, this graphic is uh, from the Kali. What was it? The uh, where did I get this? This is the. Oh shoot! This is uh, oh I I forgot to to do it. I will see if I can find the notes. But this is from a blogger that has basically been tracking the homeland security stuff. Apollo it says up there on the right. Uh, says that there's been a sharp increase of 5.3 million immigrants in this nation since 2020. 5.3 million immigrants in this nation since 2020. And that is only what's reported. That's only what's reported. This is not what's not reported. And this is not counting the fact that they could just be lying to you. Now, I point this out because if you have Americans that have been devastated from a, uh, a work ethic perspective because they've been taught that they're all uh, postmodern, secular, humanist, descendant from monkeys, and so they need their pronouns, and their everyone can be a, a you know an internet star and all this kind of stuff. You've got the destruction of the family. You've got the over reliance on the social safety nets. Um, you have the de-dollarization. Uh, there, there's all of these things going on. A bunch of immigrants coming in will keep wages low. So if you needed on an industrial level to produce stuff. You would have a bunch of people that's used to coming from a crap country, now in this country, and able to now work for dirt cheap. And now we're starting to get back where I believe is Proverbs 23, verse 4 and 5, labor not to be rich, cease from thine own wisdom. Corporations have been organized to maximize profit. Because people, I believe, not focusing on God or it is written and not learning what the law is, not understanding the constitutions, this is why we need to learn the law, um, because we have not done that, we've neglected that duty, 
You have corporations now using their power and their money and their influence in media, in politics, in war, in logistics, and now opening up the borders for millions of people to come in because America will necessarily need to be the manufacturer and the producer of all the stuff needed to fund the war, supply the war in Israel as there is a movement to galvanize an iron fist, the Middle East, so that the currency anchored by the petrodollar continues. That's, that, that's what I see as the narrative. That's what I see as these major corporations doing in order to keep their power. And this is why in verse 5, when it says, Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? You're going you're gonna to set your eyes on stuff that doesn't exist. You're going to look at something that doesn't even exist. For riches certainly make themselves wings. Your money will make itself wings. As soon as you think that you got a lot of money and power, it's going to fl float away. You make a fancy bomb, a fancy bullet with the Iron Dome. These poor people over here are going to do some homemade explosives and do an electronic or explosively formed projectile to go against your, your awesome best in the world tank. They're going to shoot these piddly rockets uh, to where your Iron Dome interceptor missiles will, will shoot them down, but you'll lose that. And our battleships, the USS Carly, part of the one of the uh, naval fleets out in the Mediterranean, it has used, just over this weekend, it has shot down 23 rockets from its systems in the Mediterranean. Now, if you're a ship in the Mediterranean, you don't have an infinite supply. This isn't a video game. You don't have an infinite supply of rockets to shoot down people's rockets. Now, they don't have an infinite supply too, but you can imagine they've got a lot more rockets than you do. You're a ship out in the ocean, which means you got to go get resupplied or someone's got to come to you. So now you can start to see how logistics is really driving the decision cycles of people. This is why I believe Israel is escalating uh, its, its rhetoric and escalating its posture because it has to do this thing because eventually the logistics inversion will happen to where asymmetry will bog them down, will absolutely bog them down. And this is why I also believe America will have to write really big checks. It's going to stop like Lake City in uh, Missouri, Lake City, Missouri, the ammo, ammo manufacturer. It's going to have to stop its normal business and shift to a war footing as hard and as fast as possible. But that's going to take time. And this is why I, I began with Lloyd Austin talking about Gaza when that verse is saying, yeah, it's going to take a long time. They've, the, they've already got, Israel already has Gaza cordoned off. They've already got it surrounded. It's already contained. The problem is they haven't yet put boots on the ground. And when that happens, Israel, as far as I'm concerned, and as far as I know, has no intelligence of the tunnel network. And because they have no intelligence of the tunnel network, how do they, how do they know where these people are? And for every one big bomb that they do, they may or may not kill civilians, which does impact the popular support of uh, Israel going against Gaza, which I don't think most Americans actually, I don't think most Americans care. I, I believe most Americans see, at least me, I, I think most Americans see that Israel should go into Gaza to destroy Hamas. I, I'm on board with that. I'm, I'm in that group. I don't believe that most Americans support America going into Gaza. I don't believe most Americans support America going to Israel. I don't believe America supports Americans getting involved in the greater area. And I think most Americans recognize we don't want to do this again. We don't want to do this again. 
I'll speak to the, the theological implications whenever I do the gospel call at the end of this live stream. But the idea is that there are still Americans who see Israel as something that they owe an allegiance to or that, that, that there's, there's a faith component there. And I'll address that here uh, after a little while. But to keep it on the logistics, there is a logistical inversion. There's an exploitation of the strength of Israel and the strength of America. And I believe after 20 years of fighting the Middle East, the Middle East understands how to bleed America dry. Or if you really want to be cynical, I think the people who are running the military industrial complex understand how to sell war to Americans so they continue to let it to happen. America is the foundational manufacturing base of the war machine because it's not really by anybody. Who's going to invade us other, other than our southern border? Other than our southern border, who's going to invade, invade America? You have oceans you have to cross. You're not impacting our infrastructure. You're not impacting our manufacturing unless we give it to globalists and outshore it. Unless we bring in immigrants who aren't from here to keep wages down, to price people out of markets, which allow corporations to buy up mom and pop manufacturing operations. That's the only way you invert us. That's the only way you destroy us, which is what China said that they would be doing starting in the you know, 1840s from the opium wars. What's going on is nothing new. It's nothing new. It's a, it's a neglect of first principle. It's a neglect of God. It's a neglect of what the Bible says. And here very plainly, Proverbs chapter 23, labor not to be rich. Cease from thine own wisdom. Corporations exist for money. They organize themselves to maximize money. And now that they've maximized money, we have, in this nation right now, are running the third largest deficit on record. The, Co the Cobisi letter, letter is where I got this. We are in the third largest deficit in, in, in nation's history. The previous two were 20 and 2021, which was the, the COVID stuff. So we are, from a petrodollar perspective, running the largest deficits in history, that is unsustainable. Unless you control all the energy. Because even if people don't agree with it, even if people don't like it, even if people don't trust it, what are they going to do? They don't have oil. They can't produce things. So, I mean, at core, I see the petrodollar being insolvent. I believe all war, most wars, I should say, most major big wars are bankers' wars. And because most big wars are bankers' wars, you now see the fact that the bankers who have built their currency to get their hooks in everything based on the petrodollar, they need oil. And as all of these Arab nations are pulling away, going towards bricks away from America, now you have an opportunity. And, and this is the case, and this might hurt. This is what I saw, and this is why I asked the question. The day of the attack, I was like, where was the intelligence? Go back to my Twitter account. I asked hours after I found out about it. I'm like, where was the intelligence on this? How, how does Palestinians breach one of the most sophisticated walls? They have seismic sensors that will pick up a dog coming up to the wall. How do you get one, uh, like, uh, you know, um, backhoe? How do you get one, like, large vehicle up to the wall and no one respond? And it took six, it just, it, it does not make sense. It does not make sense, and people who do not ask those questions really need to investigate why they believe what they believe. I believe 
And I joined the army as a result. I dedicated my life to this nation to fight for this nation in foreign wars because I believed 9-11 was people outside this nation attacking this nation. It took me a long time to come to grips with the fact that now I believe that 9-11 was absolutely an inside job. Look at Tower 7. I believe that that's sufficient evidence to point the fact that this don't make sense. How it didn't collapse from the top, it collapsed uniformly, which means that it, it got blown up at the bottom and not the top. Right, so, so that is hard evidence. That, that was a hard pill to swallow. And this is where people you know, are engaging cognitive dissonance right now. But you have a lot of immigrants coming in. You've got our third largest deficits. You have, um, you have politicians buying defense stocks. This is this, but I want to show... Did I, did I save that? Did I bring that up? No, I didn't. Um, you have politicians buying you know, uh, large cap stocks. So how Israel as Moss has increased opportunity for investors to grab large cap stocks. Well, it's talking about weapon systems. It's, it's talking about, um, you know, uh, what's it called? Weapons manufacturers. And it was it you know, just this morning on my Telegram channel, I posted the fact that Mark Wayne Mullen, U.S. Senator here in Oklahoma, uh, he bought defense stocks a couple days before the attacks. He's on the Senate Armed Services Committee. Now, I'm not implying that he knows what happens. I'm not implying that he was told and then did it. I believe Mark Wayne has put that into a blind trust. But holy crap, the people operating the blind trust sure did make a really big investment on some really good stocks right before an event happened. And this is where I get frustrated because the system that's involved based on corporations and money making, it's something that a lot of people understand at this point. I think it's something most people see at this point. But then it's like, well, what do you do about it? And that's where, for me, I'm going to go back to the Bible. I'm going to go back to the Bible. Let's look at Proverbs 23, verse 4 and 5, but in a biblical perspective. So instead of looking at corporations doing their money making and, and you know extending their powers and, and leveraging their influence for wars and, and uh, you know all the things we've previously been talking about, let's now look at this verse and apply it to us. Proverbs chapter 23. <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 23, verse 4 and 5. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 4 and 5. Labor not to be rich, cease from thine own wisdom. Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle towards heaven. Now think about that. If I'm supposed to cease what I'm if I'm supposed to cease from my own wisdom. Labor not to be rich. It means you're supposed to work, but the motive of your work is not to be rich. So what would be the motive of our work? That's the very first part of this wisdom. You are working. It just assumes you're working. It implies you're working. It also identifies a motive to work. You can work to get rich, but what would the Bible say? The Bible says, cease from your own wisdom. Stop. If you are working to get rich, stop. Which means that there's a reason you should be working. That reason is not to be rich. That reason is for what? I believe it's to glorify God. And I believe whenever you work to glorify God, God knows your heart and he will give you what you need. He will give you what he wants to give you. And if you've got a love of money, you'll probably say, you know what? I'm going to break you of that, Jaron. 
I'm going to make you be poor for a bit. I'm going to make you, uh, you know what? Here's all the wealth you want in the world. You're going to hate your life. Your wife will divorce you. You'll be porn addict. You will hate your life so much even though you can buy jets or, you know, wipe your nose with crisp $100 bills. I'll give you all the money in the world. You will hate everything about your existence. Or I will make you poor and destitute and you won't be able to afford the car. You won't be able to make rent. You'll be destitute living out on the street. But all you'll be doing is you're thinking of your idle money instead of recognizing the fact that this life is but a vapor in the wind. You are but dust in the wind, and even if you have your legs amputated, dying and being ravaged by stage four cancer, you will die, and you will see him. And if you are in Christ, whatever your physical earthly conditions matter not, because even though it might be bad, God uses affliction to bring us to him. So whether you're extremely rich or you're poor or you're somewhere in the middle, stop looking at your money. Stop doing and working for stop working for money. Now, of course, this this uh, this might seem hard and this might not make sense, but think of the wisdom here. The wisdom is if you're laboring and you're laboring for God's glory, then you're trusting God to give you what you need, and you can even ask Him stuff that you want. But you're not saying I'm going to do this and you better give me that. It's not transactional. You're not negotiating with God. You will say, God, I will love you, I will honor you, I'll work for you. And he will bless that however he determines. It might not look like a blessing to you. It might be bad in real, you know, in the earthly sense, but it might be great and heavenly in the spiritual sense. This is where I've this is where I've been uh, as of late. You know, it hurt me deeply when my dad died. And I recognized I could have hated God. I recognized in the moment, I was like, this is how people can harden their hearts. But I did not. Now let's look at this next part. Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? You're going to set your eyes? You're going to set your eyes on something that doesn't even exist? What? For riches certainly make themselves wings. The Bible's saying that you can look at wealth. You can look at trying to attain wealth. But the Bible's telling you that that doesn't even exist. You think about that? It's telling you that the wealth doesn't exist. All that is, is what God has given you. And if God gives you a lot of money, that's not because it's wealth. It's because God's blessed you in that regard. If you're poor and you're homeless and you're looking at the fact that you want money, that doesn't exist either. What you have is the opportunity to get yourself up off the ground and go do something. Go love other people. Go help other people. Go do something to bless him by serving others. Now, it's this last part. Riches will make themselves wings. Money and wealth will create for itself an opportunity to leave. People will want it. They'll sell you on things. You will be tempted to go buy and give in to your lusts. I believe the solution is live local. I believe the solution is to recognize what God's order is. And before you look at riches, you need to make sure that the labor you're doing is a form of worship unto the Lord. That if your labor is a worship unto God, then what you're actually doing is worshiping God and whatever you get is him blessing you. So you're less looking at the money and you're saying, I'm now going to worship God. Now, let me just be very specific. If you look at these nations, Israel, Gaza, uh, anywhere else, you look at these nations. They're going to be looking at economics. In fact, let me do this. This is uh, the Southcom commander. This is a woman general 
talking about uh, resources. Watch this, commentary follows. Rich in resources. And so what I worry about is the extraction of research uh, from these, uh, from these um, reserves of heavy crude oil, uh, light sweet crude that was discovered off the shores of Guyana, uh, the largest growing economy. 25% GDP is anticipated for Guyana over the next five years. Um, you have 60% of the world's lithium in the lithium triangle, Argentina, Bolivia, Chile, uh, and copper, gold. We have the Amazon, so the resources are so rich. And when you look at the strategic competition globally, but then also in this hemisphere, uh, you want to make sure that, that uh, things aren't uh, adversaries and strategic competitors aren't trying to go there for nefarious reasons to extract. Uh, this hemisphere has the potential to feed and fuel the world. I say that again, to feed and fuel the world. But when you talk about the, the agriculture and the fisheries, by 2028, Latin America will have 25% of the agriculture and uh, fisheries in the globe. You know, who knew? So we should be talking about the potential of this hemisphere, and then economics. So been working very, very hard on the economic side of the house. U.S. companies, what are their barriers to outcompete? We need to raise the profile and the branding of Team USA for our companies. So bringing all of these things together, how can we do that better for Team USA as part of Team Democracy in this hemisphere? You recognize how that's a military officer talking about economics? and companies and corporations. Did you catch that link? That's not a, an officer talking about strategy or security operations. That's an officer speaking about geopolitical economics. That's, a, that's an army officer, Southcom commander. Southcom is, is you know in control of South America. One, it's the presumption the U.S. military has become so powerful that it's basically taken portions of the world and it's broken it up into various commands. The U.S. isn't in charge of that. They just envision themselves as being operationally uh, influential in those things. She used words like, we have 60% of the world's lithium. We have the Amazon. She said, we have the Amazon. No, 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 no. Brazil has the Amazon. America does not have the Amazon. America does not have the lithium triangle. See, she's speaking from the presumption that it is her responsibility to think and act and do like that. Do you understand that this is corporation thinking modeled and oriented towards profit? Ask this woman, where does she get the constitutional grant of authority to speak like that? Where does she get that? She gets that because she's been trained to think like that. She gets that because that's expected of her. She gets that because that is where she's incentivized to think. And as Americans, we see a general, we see someone talking like that, and we're like, yeah, there is 60% of the lithium. Do you actually know that? Do you know that? Do we know where all the lithium is in the world? Or have we just said there's a bunch of lithium over here, it accounts for 60% of what we think exists right now. And because we think that it accounts for 60%, we're going to position it as this is 60% of the world's lithium, which then automatically creates a scarcity. 
And that scarcity raises the element of a security interest. And so now you can go tell the American public, well, there's 60% of lithium is in the lithium triangle, Argentina, Brazil, and Chile. She says Chile, it's Chile, right? It's America, right? It raises the interest of this one thing. And then the news will tell you, you need lithium for batteries. And then Americans will then think, what's all this stuff I have batteries for? We need lithium. We have to have batteries. And so now another nation's resources has been posited as a notion of scarcity, whereby the presumption of an army officer is looking at that resource from the pie chart of the current understanding of the existing resources on the earth bestowing it a notion of scarcity and then communicating it as though it's got military implications and that America needs to do stuff. Now, I am of the belief, I'm an America first guy. I love the Monroe Doctrine. Uh, what was his name? Um, President Monroe basically said, the Western Hemisphere is America, leave us alone. I agree with that. I don't want no superpowers up in the Western Hemisphere. I want America to be there. But I'm also starting to understand the notion and to agree with the idea that every nation needs to be its nation first. Brazil needs to be Brazil first. Guyana needs to be Guyana first. And here's the idea. If you recognize what this woman just did by presuming the military as needing to talk about these economic things with scarcity and all this stuff, if you get that, understand that those nations that she's talking about are being exploited. Those nations at that level don't have the basis of law or contracts or the judicial system for enforcing property ownership. Not like America does. And this is where Americans have an egocentric perspective of the world. We see the rule of law that we have, even though the people will be bitter and say there's a bunch of corruption. There is. Learn the law. Amen. But even though we see the notions of corruption in our nation, we're going to see that as America, and then we're going to export all the things that we don't recognize as being taken for granted. Trial by jury, due process of law, the fact that people will, will read your papers, those types of things, contract law, you have the ability to contract. Do you think that people in Guyana have the ability to contract? Or do you think that the farmer who owns the little patch of dirt in Guyana is able to say, wow, I'm standing on lithium. I own the lithium. Do you understand that the maxims of law that are uh, the truth in American jurisprudence, the, the maxims of law say that he who owns the land owns it to the sky and you own everything down to the center of the earth. So wherever your house sits, you got everything directly above like a freaking spotlight like the bat, the bat signal, you've got that portion of sky up in the ground by law according to the common law in America. You also have it all the way down to the middle of the earth, wherever that is, like where hell is, amen? So you've got everything down and everything up. That's America. Do you think that that's Guyana? They ain't got the common law. Do you think that that's Brazil? They ain't got the common law. So it's a common law notion. It's a Christian notion that property rights are sovereign. Which is why it's powerful that America has what we have, even though we've gotten away from what's written, we don't know what's the law, and now our military is leveraging those tropes in our head to leverage our taught and trained egocentrism to presume that other nations, because they have scarce resources, they can then, what, model them and develop them for their own benefit? No. 
We're going to exploit them with the military-industrial complex and large corporations working in conjunction with the military. Where do most of the generals go whenever they take off the uniform? They go work for defense companies. So now defense companies are going to be going into the 60% of the lithium in the world isn't the lithium triangle. And you're going to say that, and the Fox News audience is going to be like, wow, 60% is in the lithium triangle. We better get some of that. And then whenever it comes across the news, that person in their pride is going to say, yep, 60% of the lithium's in the lithium triangle. We absolutely have a security interest there because I saw some woman general talking about it, and I didn't even have the mind to think about what the constitutional requirements were to go to war. I'm not thinking about that because I've been trained to think, yeah, we got to go get some of that lithium. And whenever freaking What's-Its-Face LLC Corporation comes on in and starts taking it, we're like, yeah, we got to secure that lithium. We can't let China get that lithium. What about Guyana? Why can't Guyana do Guyana first? Why can't Guyana own that stuff? Why can't they contract with it? That's where peace is. That's where prosperity is. Prosperity and peace are coming from property rights. And property rights is the notion that you are given rights by Jesus... And Jesus wants you to have those rights because the very first thing we were told in the Bible was to be fruitful and multiply. Don't you see in Proverbs chapter 23, when it, verse 4, labor not to be rich. You don't labor to be rich. You labor to worship the God. You labor, labor to worship the king. I'm here to preach the gospel. I'm here to love Jesus. I'm here to be with him. I'm going to participate with him. And whatever he gives me is because he's good and not because I earned it. And if you extend that into the law, you'll recognize the common law. You own everything underneath your feet to the center of the earth with an F. And you own everything in the sky. So if there's planes coming over your home, oh, you can definitely charge them rent. You can absolutely charge them for flying over your home. Why? Because you own it. You own it. And go back to the, the Art of the Deal by Donald Trump. Donald Trump changed New York's landscape by buying air rights. He bought the rights above shorter buildings so that he could build a bigger building that outstood all the others so that it would be what everyone saw and increase his value. And people didn't think like that. People didn't think like that. They're like, yeah, I'll pay you for my air rights above my building. I don't care. And now Donald Trump and the Trump Corporation owns all the air rights around the buildings. That's why his properties are so valuable. That's a common law aspect. It's a common law idea. And it comes from the Bible. You own what's underneath your feet. And this is, this is the tie that whenever you understand live local, when you understand what the law is, when you read what's written and you understand when the Bible tells you that you are wrong, to stop. When the Bible tells you that you are wrong, stop and believe the Bible. If you don't stop and believe the Bible, your wealth will, will make themselves wings. They will fly away as an eagle towards heaven. You are giving your knowledge to not God. And now these large corporations built for making money, built for wealth, do not have God in mind, are not using the Bible for their decision making. And they're pushing us towards unrighteousness and destruction and death. And Americans are going along with it because Americans don't ground their thinking in the word. This, this is the type, this is the, I believe this is the type of thinking that Americans don't have. Americans might say, you might say, if you're listening to me, you might say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but do you connect it to the law of the land? Do you connect it to, are you aware enough to recognize that the rest of the world doesn't have the law that you have? 
And if the rest of the world doesn't have the law that you have, whenever the world comes to the, the when, when corporations come to the world and they say, hey, you got 60% of the lithium, we need that. Hey, you got the Amazon? No, no, no. We got the Amazon. American military. We got the Amazon. She's talking about it from the perspective that she has ownership. Who is she? She's a she's a general in the US military, but yet she's saying she's making claims. We have the Amazon. No, no, you don't, lady. Brazil and whatever other country the Amazon's in has the Amazon. You don't have the Amazon. That country does. And that presumption. Not only is it going against the Constitution, but you see that it creates motivation. It creates a desire to be rich. It creates a desire to be rich that Americans who aren't tethered to the Scripture will see, yeah, we got to go get that lithium. We got to go get that stuff. But you fail to, you fail to see that us with our jealousy and us with our, 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 that perspective, we're going to deprive the people that live there their property rights, which they're supposed to get from Jesus. I think that's one of the greatest forms of evangelism we can be doing. Not only for ourselves to learn the common law to beat back tyrannical government, but also to export that type of government. Because it means that the corporations and the kings and the queens and the magistrates and whatever are subordinate to the people. It means that all the people are equal. Which isn't that what the Bible says? God doesn't have partiality towards the Jew or the Gentile. Everybody must come to him through Christ. John 14, 6. And when this starts to make sense, you're like, I'm going to read the Bible. And if it tells me I'm wrong, I stop what I believe right then. Not because it's comfortable, because whenever the Bible tells you you're wrong, it hurts. When the Bible shows you that your thinking is wrong, it's like, well, crap. Now I have to admit that I was wrong. That's called repentance. Let me play something else because I've been leading up to this. This is Jonathan Greenblatt of the ADL. I want to talk about this. Commentary follows. So is there a distinction with a difference then, Jonathan, between being anti-Israel and being anti-Jewish? Hmm. Well, look, I think you can certainly be a critic of Israel. You can say, I don't like these policies. Or are they be conflated, I guess, is really yeah, the I question. Yeah, I think you can criticize Israel. I've criticized policy of the Israeli government. I'm not anti-Israel. But I think where we draw the line is being anti-Zionist. Okay. Notice what they said automatically. Is there a distinction with the difference between being anti-Israel and anti-Jewish? Understand exactly what she just said. Distinction without a difference is to say that two things are the same. Even though they could be labeled differently, anti-Jewish, anti-Israel are two different labels. But to say that it's a distinction without a difference is to say that they are the same. So this lady saying, is there a, diff is there a distinction with the difference between anti-Israel, between anti-Israel and anti-Jewish presupposes that being anti-Israel and anti-Jewish are things. You see how that, you see that happens? She just creates, I'm at 23 seconds. She just created anti-Israel and anti-Jewish as things, as labels. She said them and now your brain is forming those into things. Those are now ideas. And by her framing it as, is there a distinction with the difference between anti-Israel and anti-Jewish? She's created these two things. And now she's asking to compare the two things that she created. This is word magic. Anti-Israel is a man-made word. Anti-Jewish is a man-made word. She's asking about the distinction with the difference is a, is a logical, it, it's, it's, it's a 
It's an issue of logic, fundamental logic. A distinction without a difference is to say that two things are the same. To say even though you call them the same thing, they're really the same, they're, they're, even though you call them different things, they're really the same thing. Does that make sense? And so by her saying that, she's saying that these two things exist. That's the first thing she's doing. She's, she's saying that these two things exist, but she's framing the entire discussion around being anti-Jewish and anti-Israel. Where's Jesus in that question? I mean, let's just stop right there. If Christ is king, the whole question doesn't look to Jesus. Because if Jesus exists, wouldn't you then say you're either Christ or not Christ? Matthew chapter 12, verse 30 is where I want to go, if I can. Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, and this is critical. Christians need to hear this. Christian, I'll, I'll show you, actually. Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. Where's my camera? There's this. Matthew chapter 12, where are you at? Matthew 12, verse 30. Jesus saying, He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. This is Jesus creating categories. Jesus' categories is with him or against him, right? You're either with Jesus or you're against Jesus. That's how Jesus thinks. Now again, you either accept what the Bible says or you don't accept what the Bible says. If Jesus says you are either with him or you are against him, when a woman is asking, or someone in the media, it doesn't have to be a woman. When the woman is asking, is there a distinction with a difference between anti-Jewish or anti-Israel? She is using a category. She's using a, uh, a binary category that Jesus doesn't use. Just, just plain. Just plain reading of the Bible. Jesus doesn't use anti-Israel or anti-Jewish. Period. Jesus uses for Jesus against Jesus, period. So her asking the question, anti-Israel, anti-Jewish, is automatically a category that is not Christ. Automatically. You have to understand that. This is critical. If you do not begin your thinking with what the Bible says, you do not begin your thinking with what the Bible says. Jonathan Greenblatt is not a Christian. He does not know Jesus. So Jonathan Greenblatt, anything he says is going to be in the category of not with Jesus. So if Jonathan Greenblatt is in the category of not with Jesus, he is not in the category of with Jesus. That is basic. That is very fundamental. That is a distinction with a difference. So when Jonathan Greenblatt answers this question, keep in mind very simply, the question presupposes not Christ, and the person answering the question is going to pontificate and use ideas that are all 100% not Christ. Keep that in mind. We'll continue. <clears throat> where, where, did it, where did it go? Where did it go? Right here. Go ahead. So is there a distinction with a difference then? That's Israeli yeah, I think, I think you can criticize Israel. I've criticized policy of the Israeli government. I'm not anti-Israel. But I think where we draw the line is being anti-Zionist. Okay. What I mean by that is this ideology. Another, he, he just created another category, anti-Zionist. That is also not Jesus. Anti-Zion is not Jesus. Jesus is not anti-Zion. Those are two different things. Again, this man does not know the Lord, so he's going to be saying things that are 100% not Christ. Keep going. That says, I oppose the existence of the Jewish state. 
I oppose the legitimacy of Jews having the right to self-determination. I oppose the whole notion that Jewish people should be able to live in their ancestral homeland. That is an idea. Now here, I want to come alongside him and say that there are people who look at the modern state of Israel and they say, we don't like it because of the Balfour Declaration, the Rothschilds, the, the other things. Um, if you don't know the history of modern Israel, the modern nation of Israel, a bunch of rich people started, you know, rich people, Jews started the Zionist movement and they used power and privilege and influence to create the nation of Israel. And before they were going to call the nation of Israel Israel, they were going to call it Heretz. And Heretz is land. But I wonder how I wonder how divisive this issue would be had the nation of Israel actually been called Heretz and not Israel. Because if it's called Heretz, Heretz is the Hebrew word for land, and Americans who speak English wouldn't have heard that. Americans who speak English hear Israel and think what the Bible teaches. So the and I'll just be I'll just be straight. The dog whistle of modern Israel would not have hit the ears of English-speaking Americans had modern Israel been called Heretz. That's the first thing. The second thing is you can say Israel's a nation. The the world went with it. It's created problems, but I don't want them to be destroyed. Like that's that's what I believe. I don't want Israel to be destroyed. I don't want the modern nation of Israel to be destroyed. I think that would be a bad thing. I think it's a bad thing that the Jews were attacked. I think it's a bad thing that people were killed by Hamas. I also think it's a bad thing that when Israel goes into Hamas, a bunch of people are going to get schwacked. It's it's going to be bloody. It's going to be brutal. As a guy that's walked battlefields with dead people, I don't want that. Period. Because I see that from the biblical category and I say, if these people don't know Jesus, then they die and they go to hell forever. So whenever we talk about geopolitics, for me, the gospel has to be the center issue. Has to be. If the gospel is not the center issue, then we can't tell Jonathan Greenblatt, who hates Jesus, that he needs to believe the gospel or he's going to go to hell. We don't do that. What we do is we put the gospel to the side and we elevate the nation of Israel as something that's coming from the Bible. Well, hold on. Which is more important, the nation of Israel or the gospel of Jesus Christ? Those two things. Which is more important, the nation of Israel as people see it today or the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians that he would have no, no one know anything except for Christ and him crucified. Jesus says that our, our in, in Galatians, our ministry or Colossians, our ministry is the one of reconciliation. How are you reconciled with God? According to Jesus, the only way to be reconciled through God to God is through the gospel. Jesus calls himself the door. Jesus calls himself the way. Jesus calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. Only through Jesus do you get God. You do not get God through the nation state of Israel. You get God through the gospel. That issue has to be what Christians are unified on, period. Because what's happening is you have someone who doesn't know the Lord is using words that will enter ears of American Christians and take their heart away from Jesus. And it will take their heart away from Jesus because the interpretation of the Bible thinks that Israel is to going to be existing instead of the gospel. 
I believe the gospel will be so thoroughly powerful that it will save the world. John 3, 16 and 17. And because Jesus is so powerful to save the world through the gospel, he will. That's what I believe. That's what I believe the Bible teaches. And so when you have Jonathan Greenblatt, who is not of Jesus, using words like Israel or like these things, anti-Zionism, he's using constructions, he's using labels in order to enter people's brains that they need to stack with scripture, especially the scriptures that point to You're either with, you know, he that is not with me, Jesus, is against me, Jesus. And he that gathereth not with Jesus, scattereth abroad. That's how Jesus thinks. That's how Jesus thinks right there. That's how Jesus thinks about his people and his categories. But let's keep going because he says something. This guy says, Jonathan Greenblatt says something incredibly deceptive. He said a lot of things deceptive, but he says something incredibly deceptive here later. So... Is there a dis I oppose the legitimacy of Jews having the right to self-determination. I oppose the whole notion that Jewish people should be able to live in their ancestral homeland. That is an ideology which is now common on college campuses. It's common in some corridors of power. We have people in Congress like Rashida Tlaib who professes this idea. And then, by the way, it's common in some newsrooms. We see this with the copy editors and some other people making decisions. But anti-Zionism, I've long said, is anti-Semitism. I was wrong. Anti-Zionism is genocide. Now understand, he just said, he's long said something. Let's play this back real fast. Copy editors and some other people making decisions. But anti-Zionism, I've long said, is anti-Semitism. So he's long said anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. So this is a doctrine. He just He's just telling you his long-preached doctrine was anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. That's been his doctrine. Now listen to what he says. I was wrong. How is he wrong? How does he know he's wrong? What corrected him? What standard of truth and righteousness does Jonathan Greenblatt, who does not know Jesus Christ, use in order to tell himself that he was wrong did he come up with it himself did someone pay him did he how does he know he is wrong the bible says jesus prayed in garden of gethsemane sanctify them by thy truth thy word is truth the bible sanctifies christians the bible is how christians think jonathan greenblatt is not of the lord so he just said his long doctrine was anti-Semitism is anti-Zionism, but he just said he was wrong. How did he determine he was wrong? Because now that he's wrong, he's now going to make another truth claim. If he was wrong before, and we don't know how he knew he was wrong, or we don't know how he was told he was wrong, how do we know that what he's about to say that he now believes is true is actually true. Anti-Zionism is genocide. How does he know that? How does he know that? What standard did he use to tell him that? Or, as you know, I could pull up, not now because I don't have the clip, but this guy once talked about how he makes money with uh, the ADL. How do we know that he's not getting paid for this? How do we know that this is not better for his bottom line? How do we know that the war that's escalating in the modern state of Israel isn't creating for itself, for this guy, its own market incentive to start to escalate the language? 
Do you see how when the gospel is not the center staged issue, we are now no longer talking about the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ? We never were. This guy was never talking about that. He's never talked about the gospel. And because he's never talked about the gospel, he's now elevated anti-Zionism to genocide. This man doesn't know the Lord, but he's telling, he's making a truth claim. How does he say what is true? By what standard does he believe something? How did he change his mind? How does he now know that he's right and not wrong again? Because if he long said anti-Zionism was anti-Semitism, and he said that for a long time, how does he now know that he was one, wrong, and two, how does he now know that what he now says is true? And what I mean is, if you so dehumanize Zionists, by the way, every Jewish person is a Zionist. You might not believe in the political project of the state of Israel, but every Saturday morning, like for me yesterday, you open your prayer book and it talks about Zion. It talks about Jerusalem. That right there is where Christians need to say, okay, it's good that you're opening your prayer book, but is your prayer book the Bible? Or is your prayer book a Talmud-inspired uh, document? Because if it's the Bible, let's go ahead and look to the points where Christ is in the Old Testament. Let's look to where Christ is the promised seed of Abraham. Let's look at where Christ does come through the chosen people of God, the Israelites. He does come from the tribe of Judah. He is of the promised uh, land. Let's, let's see where he does come from the town of David. David. Let's see where he does do those things. Because if a Jew is going to open up the Bible and he's going to say, here, let me pray to Zion, let's get that in context. Why is Zion important? It's important because that's how we know who Christ is. That's how we know that Christ is who he promised he was. When Christ came and spoke to the Jews, he's saying, this is what's written and it's written of me, John 8. This is what's written, and you will see me do it. The, Lord, the, the Son of Man will be lifted up, and all of the people will look to him for salvation. John chapter 3. This is how we know who Christ was, is that the Bible was written about him. And when you make it about Israel, when you make it about Jews, you make it not about Christ. Now, I'll, I'll address the idea of people believing that there's still prophecies and promises to Israel in a second, but you have to understand that the priority is not the Jewish people. The priority is not Israel. The priority is Christ. The priority is the gospel. The priority is how people get to know God. The priority is so that they understand what God wants for them, what God has said, so that you can understand who he is, so that you can know him. And here you have a man who is not of the Lord using words that are very familiar to Christians speaking English to hear from their Bibles, Zion, Israel, Jew. Those are words that the American Christian's ear are going to say, yep, that's in my Bible. That's true. But yet here's a man who's talking about this stuff who doesn't know the Lord. And the Bible says, I'll show this to you. We're at 121. The Bible says, in my handy-dandy camera, where is this? Romans 3. Sorry, I didn't have it uh, marked. Romans 3, verse 4. Romans 3, verse 4. 
Romans 3, verse 4. I'll just, I'll just go uh, from one. What advantage then hath the Jew? What profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. Right? God spoke to the Jews. Why? Because it's about Christ. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid, yea. Let God be true, but every, every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in the saints and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written. The Bible is what God says, and what God says is true, and what not God says is not true. So let God be true and every man a liar. This man is using Bible words to influence American Christians to think according to not Jesus. To think according to not the Bible. Let's go again. So is there a... It talks about Jerusalem. Jews have been praying to Jerusalem for 2,000 years. 2,000 years. But here's the point. And why are they been praying to Jerusalem? And J Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. Jerusalem was destroyed, I believe, because Christ promised that it would. Matthew 24, verse 34. Jesus told on the Olivet Discourse to the people listening to him, there's going to be a lot of bad stuff that happens to this generation. The generation who pierced him, Zechariah 12.10, Revelation 1.7. The people who pierced Christ saw Christ return. When Christ returned, he brought judgment against them. When he judged them, he destroyed the temple. He removed every stone on top of other stones, just like he said would happen. The reason why Jews have been praying to Jerusalem for 2,000 years is because Jews have rejected Jesus. They do not look to Christ. They do not believe the gospel. And because they don't believe the gospel, they don't have God. They, they, they are certainly free from a political sense to read their Bibles, or I shouldn't say their Bibles. They're free to read Torah. They're free to read the Talmud. They're free to believe as they choose. I'm not trying to compel them from a political perspective or with guns or whatever to make them believe what I believe. I am, however, not going to give an inch. I'm not going to give one jot or tittle to a Jew who denies Christ. Not one ounce of liberty with the scripture of God's word. If I do that, I demote Jesus. If I do that, I create an idol. And now I'm under wrath. Now I'm in the gun. Now I'm someone who's allowing for a false gospel to be preached. And I can't do that. We'll finish up. Zionism is whether you're a religious Jew going to synagogue every day, or you're just a cultural Jew who even thinks of themselves as an atheist. Zionism is embedded in our tradition. It's fundamental to our existence. And so for the anti-Zionist who says all Zionists are evil, all Zionists are bad, the Zionist project is wrong, that leaves us in a very weird position. Yeah, uh, well, every man is evil, not just Zionists. All men are sinners and fall short of the glory of God. That's Psalm 14, that's Romans 3. Every man is a sinner and falls short of the glory of God. The challenge here is do we let the Bible tell us what to think? Do we let the Bible tell us what God says? I believe that one of the worst things that's been run amok in the American Christian church is this notion that you can have your interpretation and I can have my interpretation. Because if you can have your interpretation and I have my interpretation, then it means that God is not clear. 
It doesn't mean I'm right and you're wrong. It doesn't mean you're right and I'm wrong. It means God is not clear. Think about that. If God speaks and he says what he says and he means what he means, how could he tell two of his followers, me and you, you and someone else, me and someone else, how could he tell two people who are in the same spirit two different things that are completely opposed to each other? Because that's confusion. That's not truth. That's an opportunity for grace and love and forgiveness and compassion and reconciliation. And I believe that is God's wisdom that that would happen. But that's not God's wisdom to mean multiple things is true. That's us, our flesh, our assumptions, our philosophies that are masking that. And Paul speaks to this in 1 Corinthians when he says that we see dimly. We see dimly because we don't have perfect knowledge. I do not have perfect knowledge. I don't have a perfect view of the Bible. I don't perfectly understand everything. I will be corrected when the scripture is used the way it's supposed to be. And that is that little part where people say, well, well how do you know it's supposed to be? Well, let's, let's come reason together. Let's love one another and say, first and foremost, Christ is king. He rose physically from the grave. He is the only way to go uh, to heaven. He is the only way for salvation. The fear of the Lord is the only way that you get God's wisdom. Let's agree on what the Bible says about who Jesus is. Because Revelation 19.10, everyone wants to talk about Revelation. Everyone wants to bring their own interpretations to Revelation. But Revelation 19.10 will tell you one very important thing. Revelation 19.10. Revelation 19, verse 10. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. Don't worship me. I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Prophecy testifies to what? Jesus. The, the, the spirit of prophecy testifies of Christ. Any prophecy is going to testify to Christ. Period. So in my view, I believe the Bible teaches to understand prophecy, you must look at Christ. You do not look to Israel. You do not look to Jews. You look to Jesus. You see who Jesus is. You see what Jesus did. You see what Jesus said. Jesus is the interpretive instrument. He is the one that will give you the knowledge. And we know this because Colossians chapter 2 verse 3. Colossians chapter 2 verse 3. What do we got? Colossians chapter 2, verse 3. Let me just go for verse 1. For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love. There you go, being knit together in love. And unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and the father of and of Christ so we want you to be fully assured of and under of understanding that the acknowledgement of the mystery of of God and the father of Christ in whom are hid all treasures of wisdom and knowledge and i say this lest any man should beguile you with enticing words 
deceive you with persuasive words is what this is talking about. Paul is telling the church at Colossae that he wants you to be knitted together in love with the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Everything that you can know is in Christ. It is not in Israel. It is not in Jews. And this is what's hard, because I had a lady that was watching me, saying on my Facebook page, Jaron, I can't believe that you've denied Christ because you don't support Israel. First, modern state of Israel, I, I want them to exist. I don't want them to be destroyed. I want the IDF to crush Hamas. I want the IDF to do the siege strategy to lower the number of people who are dead and to not escalate into a general third world war. But I don't want Jews to be killed. I don't want Israel to be destroyed. So I'm not rejecting Israel. I am, however, saying that the most important thing is the gospel. I am, however, saying that the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only way to go to heaven. I am saying that Jesus is the source of all hidden knowledge and truth. And so if you're going to look to prophecies, the prophecies, the spirit of prophecies, testify of Jesus. So you need to look at what Jesus says. You need to look at what Jesus did. You need to look at what Jesus said would happen. He's the one that makes sense of everything. And there's portions in the New Testament that speak to these mysteries. These mysteries were previously hidden. And if the mysteries were previously hidden, how can you then go back to say, well, this is what the Old Testament means if you deny what the New Testament says it means? If the New Testament says that not all of Israel is Israel, then you need to understand that whenever the Old Testament's speaking about Israel, it needs to be with a New Testament lens to make sure that we know what it means. And if you're looking at Old Testament prophecies, and for whatever reason, people, you know, they have their own views. If you believe these prophecies are in the future for us, you need to make sure that they're interpreted through Jesus first. Because he's the one with all knowledge, with all the treasures of knowledge and understanding. The reason why this is important is because Americans, many Americans, in many Americans, many Christians in America, have a dispensationalist view of the end times. They've been taught through seminaries, seminaries celebrity pastors, the Schofield Bible, uh, Tim LaHaye Left Behind series. Uh, they've been taught a view of things that their beliefs are so grafted into the modern nation of Israel as a prophecy of Israel to return in the end times. One, they miss the gospel. I'm not saying they don't believe the gospel. I'm saying in these instances where Israel is brought up, the gospel is not made to be over that. The gospel, Jesus Christ has to be king of everything because he is king of everything. And so whenever you have someone who doesn't know the Lord talking about Israel, talking about Jews, talking about Zionism, Jesus has to be the king of that. Has to be. That's the starting point. The starting point is that Christ is the king. The starting point is that Christ physically rose from the grave. That is the context everything must take. Has to. The world won't like it. The world will hate it. The world will teach beguiling things against that. It will absolutely do that because if you acknowledge that, if you acknowledge Jesus died on the cross for the remission of sins, was buried, and three days later, he physically rose. If you acknowledge that he's now seated to the right hand of the Father, which is the throne, 
If he's seating on his throne and he expects his enemies to be footstooled, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 13, you cannot conclude, you cannot conclude that the modern nation state of Israel is what the Israel is of the Bible. You can't. Because the New Testament, Jesus, now says there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Zero. There is no distinction. Not let alone the, the land promises were kept. Joshua chapter, uh, what was it, 21, verse 43 through 45. God kept all his promises that he made to, to Israel for, the, for them to occupy the promised land. The Bible literally says that. The Bible says God kept all his promises. And now the New Testament says there is no difference. There's no distinction between Greek or Jew or Scythian or barbarian or free man or slave. There's no difference. Everyone has to come to Jesus. That is the offensiveness of the gospel. That is how Christ offends the world. Because it is the singular, exclusive truth claim of who has all power. And he doesn't share it. He, he, he will give people power. He, he will dispense power. He will do those things for sure. But he's not just going to share it with you just because of an interpretation. And this is, this is, this is going to hurt. It's going to cost me support. It's going to cost me followers. It's going to cost me people who are mad at me. Uh, for all sorts of reasons, people are going to call me a heretic. They're going to call me all sorts of things. But when you make all ideas captive to Christ and you read what he said, and then he pointed apostles and he says, you guys go tell people the gospel, go tell people what these things are. And his chosen apostle said, this is a mystery that was previously hidden. Here, let me explain it to you. That means what was in the Old Testament is now being understood by this. Which means you don't go to the Old Testament to get the meaning of the New Testament. You look at what Jesus says in order to understand where all things point in. And the Old Testament will show you God's faithfulness to his people. The Old Testament will show you that when God makes a promise, he keeps it. When he makes a covenant, he keeps it. He says the everlasting covenant was for Abraham's seed. The seed of promise is Galatians 4. And this matters because there's a lot of Christians that think the modern state of Israel is Israel of the Bible. And it's putting them in a position, think of the implications. It's putting them in the position where they have to support massive war. It's putting them in the position where they support two-thirds of the Jews being killed. I, I don't want that. But if you believe that the nations have to come against Israel and for people to kill Israel. You believe massive amounts of Jews, a remnant, only a remnant survives. I don't want to accept that for the people in Israel. I don't want to accept that for that because I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. I don't believe that Jesus is going to do it like that. I believe that Jesus is going to say, my gospel will save the world. John chapter 3, verse 16 to 17. Anyway, the gospel matters and it, it, it in my view, the Bible has to be the thing that we use. It has the God's word has to be what we use to make sense of anything, whether that's economics, logistics, uh, geopolitics, or um, you know the Southern Commander thinking that uh, that that uh, what was it lithium that the lithium triangle is hers that Amazon is ours. No, it's not. Use the Bible to make sense of things. 
Anyway, believe the gospel, my friends, because it's the only thing that matters. One way that you can help me is to go to humblewb.coffee, humblewb.coffee. This is air-roasted premium coffee delivered right to your door. This private membership association takes portions of proceeds and then sends Bibles out. It's a great way to get delicious air-roasted coffee, not drum-roasted coffee, no flavorings, no false additives, nothing like that delivered right to your door. And I want to uh, you know, use portions of the proceeds to advance, you know, send out the Bible. I think people need to read the Bible. Uh, also, you have the patriotswitch.com slash Jaren option. This is taking the money that you're already shopping and switching it over. This is important. We just got done speaking about logistics. The owner of this American manufacturing company is vertically integrated. That means that from the original source product all the way to the finished product to your door, it never leaves the company. He owns the supply chain, which is why it's important. It's why it's also price competitive. That globalists like BlackRock or Walmart or Costco can't buy themselves through the stock market at the seat of the table. Because the globalists can't buy the seat of the table, you're not going to get any godless commie advertising. You're not going to get hazardous industrial chemicals. You're also going to get a reliable supply chain because it can't be manipulated or distorted to create supply shortages. Anyway, that is available at patriotswitch.com slash Jaren. Patriotswitch.com slash Jaren. Lord willing, we'll be back tomorrow. Until next time, I am Jaren Jackson. I do love America. Thank you for watching. Don't quit. Go to war.